This is Laura Lovett reporting for Sprouts, connecting communities to science. In our second episode, we're going to continue our discussion of gas leaks. As I explained last week, underneath our cities and towns, there are thousands of natural gas lines. Some of those lines leak. Gas companies are required to fix some of those leaks, but not all of those leaks. In Massachusetts alone, there are 16,507 unfixed gas leaks. Last week, we had on with us Audrey Schulman of HEAT. We talked about gas leaks mapping, where you can actually find your street and see if there are gas leaks on that street. Today, we have on with us Nathan Phillips, a Boston University professor in the Environment and Earth Studies Department. He has worked extensively with gas leak policy and the research behind gas leaks. Nathan Phillips will join us after this break. So thank you so much for coming on today. Can we start off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested with gas leaks? Yes. So I'm a tree physiologist by training, and I stumbled onto the gas leaks issue through trees. I was on a walk a couple blocks from my house in Auburndale with my son Julian, and we found a person that was looking at gas leaks in a soil that was killing a tree, and that's how it all started for me. Can you tell me a little bit about what do gas leaks exactly do to the environment? I mean, you were talking about trees. Um, what's happening to the trees there? So the gas leaks cuts off the oxygen to the roots, and the oxygens have to breathe just like we breathe. And if there's no, if there's no oxygen, the, the roots die, and then the tree dies. So that's the most immediate impact on vegetation from gas leaks. And then there are impacts that get uh, expressed at bigger scales. So there are air quality issues that the gas leaks contribute to air, degradation of air quality. That's more at the kind of city scale. And then at the largest scale, there's the greenhouse gas issue. So methane, which is the largest constituent of natural gas, is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So can we actually see this impact on trees like as we walk down the street? Yes. And so there are telltale signs. Now, in suburbs like Newton and, and cities, trees get damaged and die for a lot of different reasons. So you can't just assume. But when you start to put together a few clues, they start to paint a picture. One is if you see a dead or dying tree and you smell gas, that's starting to put two things together. And then you have to start looking, is the soil also, the grass also showing grass burns in that area? Um, there, sometimes there are certain kinds of fungi that grow on trees that are damaged by gas. So there's a bunch of different kinds of indicators that allow people to tell whether the damage is likely due to the gas. Now, I know that you were part of a study that tracked super emitters. Um, can you just tell me what is a super emitter and then a little bit about that study? Yes, that study was funded by the Barr Foundation in collaboration with the Conservation Law Foundation. And our question in that study, which was led by Margaret Hendrick, a PhD student at, at Boston University, the question was, are gas leaks 
distributed as like there's an average gas leak in terms of how much is coming out. Some are a little bit higher, some are a little bit lower, kind of like a bell-shaped curve. Or are they distributed in some other fashion? And so to do that, this is a statistical question. We had to go and look at a lot of gas leaks. We looked at a hundred of them that we had previously detected in our drive-around surveys. And we found that 7% of the leaks contributed 50% of the lost gas. So that has a very immediate policy implication. If, implication. if you can find and fix those few handful of large leaks, you've gone a long way to stemming the greenhouse gas and money loss problem. And now, how do you find these leaks? That's a great question. So it's laborious. To do it in a research fashion, we need to use chambers and go out and survey the leak in great detail. And on our first leak, literally, we spent about a month getting the amount of gas coming out of the the soil, the manhole covers, the pavement itself, cracks and crevices. Um, These are complex leaks, and so it, it is difficult. And now what we're doing is working with other groups to help the utilities to come up with operationally efficient ways to detect these super emitters. And those can include proxy measurements like how what's the spread of the leak on the soil? If you can measure it um, in, in a certain area, is there a threshold number of square feet that uh, would indicate, okay, there must be a lot of gas coming out? So, so efficient ways for the industry to be able to find and fix the leaks is what we're doing now. No, you know, thinking about um, our community, why, why does a super emitter, uh, why should someone care about a super emitter? How do they actually impact our streets and our health? Well, as I said, the natural gas does degrade our air quality, so we should be concerned about that. These leaks in in places like California, where there was a giant super emitter down at Aliso Canyon, the Porter Ranch gas leak a year and a half ago or so, people were getting headaches and nosebleeds because of the constituents of the gas. Those values in the air are not so different that they were living in and walking through than some of the leaks that we have in greater Boston, including Newton. And so if it's something that's causing health issues for people there, it should be something that we're concerned about here. And that's just one of the issues. The damage to our urban canopy is something that we should all be concerned about, not just because of its impact on our property values, on our aesthetics, um, but also the ecosystem services that the trees provide to us, the shade, the energy benefits, uh, the water cycle regulation. All of these things are a loss when we lose our tree canopy. Um, And then there's the money uh, that we're losing. It's $90 million a year in lost value is what we estimated in the Commonwealth. Um, and, and finally, climate change is the biggest issue facing our globe, and this is a very, very bad uh, contributor to climate change. Now, let's talk about money for a minute. How exactly is that cost passed on, or who's paying for it? The ratepayers are paying for it. So Tom Kiley from the Northeast Gas Association said it very clearly in a um, uh, testimony to the uh, at the state house several years ago, it's built into our rates. So the ratepayers are are covering that uh, what's called lost and unaccounted for gas. And until we're able to 
switch the incentives so that the utilities are bearing the cost of the lost and uh, leaked gas. We really can't ex- uh, expect them to be highly motivated to fix the problem if it's not in, if they don't have a financial interest to do so. They're a business that are beholden to their shareholders, um, and so that's you know we need to have the incentives lined up. No, are there any laws that are you know being discussed around this? Yes, there's a consumer protection bill that's going through the uh, state house as we speak, and that's a bill that would uh, help to shift the cost uh, to, of the leaked gas to the utilities. There was a previous attempt to do this in the energy omnibus bill in the last session, and that failed at the 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 twelfth hour, if you will, uh, really literally. Um, in the final hours of session uh, and behind closed doors. That provision went away. Now, you know, while we're talking about laws, um, what are the laws around those super emitters? Well, so what's really great as a result of the research that we've done and really as a result of an amazing array and coalition of groups, including Mothers Out Front, Sierra Club, HEAT, the Home Energy Efficiency Team, Clean Water Action, uh, Massachusetts Climate Action Network, Boston Climate Action Network. I'm sorry, I have to go on and on, but uh, this group of people came together to get uh, policy enacted. And so one of those is that in the um, most recent legislation that has passed into law uh, in the Energy Omnibus Bill, there's a provision that requires the state to address what they call environmentally significant gas leaks. That's a fairly vague term, but that the vagueness of it and the generality of it actually gives it some power uh, because environmentally significant can mean everything from climate impacts to tr- damage to trees to air quality. So now where we are after that law has passed is in the regulatory uh, area where the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Public Utilities are working and promulgating rules to how do we find those uh, environmentally significant leaks like the super emitters. And and so that's what stakeholders and the advocacy community is helping the state, helping the utilities to come up with these operational ways to find those super emitters. Now, I saw you moderate a mayoral debate um, in Newton about a month ago, and there was something that you briefly touched on, um, and it's kind of the debate around, you know, whether repairing the pipes for gas leaks kind of commits us to this form of energy in the future. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, in the last two years, my thinking has completely flipped on this. So I used to say two years ago that Patching leaks is a Band-Aid solution, and what we really need to do is replace the leaks, uh, replace the pipes. But that always kind of gnawed at me because new pipes are expensive and they're meant to last for the next 50 or 60 years. So if we think of, if we use the the rhetoric of of natural gas as a so-called bridge fuel to, you know, transition our energy systems to renewables, you know, we're really putting brand new struts back on that old ailing bridge. We're rebuilding the bridge, and we're doing it for a very long time. So I've actually switched my thinking to, instead of replacing pipes, triage this old leaking system. Use the Band-Aid approach. Find and fix. Now that we know we can find and fix 
that handful of leaks that have this outsized effect, find and fix those ones, patch them. But instead of replacing pipes that cost about $1.9 million a mile for replacement, let's consider whether those places that are slated for replacement, paid for by ratepayers around the Commonwealth, uh, can instead go to a different model of heating, namely electric, with electric air source heat pumps, with induction cooktops, convection stoves, uh, electric water heaters. Now, what do you see as being some of the biggest challenges um, coming up with gas leaks um, and, you know, using this form of energy? Well, you know, um, we've been cooking the planet for the last 150 years, and it's getting worse and worse every year. And natural gas, I don't want to completely slam it because it did and has led to the dramatic reduction in coal and hopefully and we need to push harder on coal and drive a stake into coal and put it out of business altogether because it is dirty energy Um, but if you think about it it's like we've been boiling a pot of water and now we're putting it down to simmer Um, and the natural gas is simmering the planet it's still a fossil fuel Um, it leaks it leaks to the extent that it it can even be as bad as coal um, but even if you patch every single one of those leaks, it's still 50%. It, it, it's about half as bad as coal for the planet, even if there were zero leaks, even if it was a completely tight system. And we've moved so far so quickly in, in how we've de- the cost of solar and wind over even the last five to ten years that it's really time to be moving as aggressively as we can off of fossil fuels altogether and on to the renewables. Now, could you talk to me a little bit about, you know, I know that gas leaks are methane. Um, What exactly does that mean and what does that mean for our carbon footprint? Yeah, so methane is one carbon atom that's bonded to four different hydrogen atoms. And uh, when when it is not burned, when it is not combusted the way we are supposed to be using it, um, it floats into the atmosphere as that molecule. And in a, on a pound-per-pound basis, methane is 86 times as powerful as CO2 over a 20-year window of activity. So it is a hugely, hugely uh, powerful greenhouse gas. And, and, you know, so that's why... Even fossil fuel producing uh, companies sometimes will flare the gas. They'll burn it as they're wasting it into the air just to turn it into, combust it and turn it into CO2 uh, instead of having it come out as as methane. So, yeah, Yeah, powerful greenhouse gas. When it burns, it's actually less methane than this pure form. Um, Could you explain, like, what's the difference or how does that happen? Yeah, so it's a very simple reaction, but the the methane combines with oxygen, just like when you start a fire, you have to have oxygen. So the CH4 plus uh, plus O2, oxygen, goes to CO2 and H2O. That's the simple balanced chemical equation for the combustion of methane. So the products of the burning of that methane are you get heat energy out of it, and they get some CO2 and you get some H2O vapor. Um, so, so even when you burn it, it, it's still a fossil fuel that l- results in CO2 going into the atmosphere. Um, so um, yeah, it's a fossil fuel and we need to move off of it. So what are some of the best alternatives right now instead of using natural gas? 
Well, as I said, what we need to do, our focus in Newton, in the Commonwealth, in the nation, and on the planet, is to move towards renewables and electrification of our building sector. And the the price and cost is becoming more and more effective each time. Now, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, actually renewables right now and cannot compete with the low price of natural gas. So what they're doing there is they're comparing a, a kilowatt hour or a certain amount of uh, energy of electric, electrical energy with a certain similar amount of energy of the methane, natural gas energy. What's not being included, there's actually a not, and if you just do that, then yeah, I mean, per unit of energy, natural gas is, is really hard to beat right now. It's so cheap, there's such a glut of it. But what's not put into those equations is things like the $1.9 million per mile borne by ratepayers to build the pipes or replace the pipes to pipe that commodity. It's not just the commodity cost, it's the cost of the infrastructure. And the infrastructure often is being borne by ratepayers, um, or even for the big giant pipelines, the transmission pipelines, the investor-owned utilities and the natural gas companies are trying to get laws passed that would require ratepayers, electrical ratepayers, electricity ratepayers, mm-hmm. to pay for the investment in these large new pipelines to increase our dependency on natural gas. So they failed at doing that in the last legislative session, the so-called pipeline tax. They wanted because they couldn't finance it themselves. They wanted to hoist the financing of these new infrastructure onto ratepayers. So the costs really have to be thought through in terms of their entirety. And I haven't even talked about the other external costs, like the cost to the climate, the cost to our air quality, and those kinds of things. Now, is there any state or even any other country that we can use as a model um, towards how they end up you know, fixing gas leaks or moving towards alternative energy forms? Costa Rica is really fortunate to have a lot of hydropower, but um, in addition to that, they've moved very rapidly. They're uh, nearly, if not fully, um, independent of fossil fuels for their primary energy supply. Uh, Countries in Scandinavia and Europe are moving very rapidly towards electrification of their vehicle fleet, um, of their home energy and building energy sector, so the U and you know China, for example, is just now setting um, targets to completely transition off of fossil fuels for their vehicle transportation sector. So that's not quite natural gas, um, but there are lots of examples of countries that are moving very rapidly um, away from from fossil energy. And instead, what we have in our country. Um, is the attempt to bring back coal, for example, which is it makes it doesn't make any sense. It's it's completely retrograde. Um, but even when we talk about natural gas, the influence of the natural gas lobby is very difficult um, because they're lobbying, you know, all the time in the state house, and uh, that is it does have an impact. So the advocacy community uh, needs to counter that. And the great thing is that I see a lot of power in um, the advocacy community that are that are really questioning um, the the uh, narrative 
that gas is clean and that we need to build out more gas. Um, there's, there's a lot of, of, of people power that's countering the, the power of money. And now, can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, I'm a person who doesn't have any science background and I want to get out there and I want to help with gas leaks. How would I go about doing that? Yeah, so first of all is to become aware of the issue. The, what we found in this research was that the number one thing was no one knew about it. Um, you know, it's an invisible problem, and it's typically bare, it, this is a problem emanating from under our streets, so there's an invisibility to it. But once people start to understand the issue and they start to use their eyes and their nose, um, then they start to become activated. Um, and so that's the first thing I would, you know, learn what a gas leak smells like. If you don't, if someone hasn't taken you to a gas leak and said, hey, smell that, once you smell it, you'll never forget that. And then you're now a walking citizen scientist. And when you smell a leak, call it in. In addition, you can get involved with groups uh, that are at the local level. There are groups like 350 Newton, Green Newton, Mothers Out Front in Newton, um, a variety of groups that are activated on this issue at the local level and connect via nodes to larger uh, groups at the, at the state level. Uh, so those are two ways to really get, get involved on the issue. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Bye. We just completed our segment on gas leaks um, in Massachusetts, and so I've invited onto the show Caitlin Kelleher. Um, so, Caitlin, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? We're just going to have a discussion. Sure. I am Caitlin Kelleher. I am the innovation specialist with Wicked Local. So, part of what that job is is kind of overseeing all of our podcasting. So, that's how Laura and I ended up connecting here. And I am the host of Extra Extra, which is a podcast that takes people behind the scenes and into our newsroom so that you can subscribe to that show as well as Sprouts on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. So there's our, there's our nice little plugs. Yeah, so Caitlin has been, um, you know, coming into the studio with me and talking me through, um, you know, this Gas Leaks project. Um, I don't know, what do you think was one of your biggest takeaways from this? I think there have been a couple. I mean, between this podcast and kind of the episodes we've been listening to, and then I did some reporting on the work of Mothers Out Front and Heat when I was editing Lexington. So I'm shocked at how many there leaks there are and just how much kind of it's part of what we expect in our community. Because... I, I don't know how often you go in and read the police logs or the fire logs yeah. for Newton. <laughs> I did it for Lexington. People call a lot for the smell of gas. And the fire department kind of comes in, tests for it. They say, yeah, this is a dangerous level or no, this is fine. We can't find the source. And that's the end of the fire department's role in this process. And now we have utility companies that are fixing the priority ones, but not the rest of them and I think we have to as a society have to decide what we want to do about it right and actually it's funny because we were talking earlier I had gotten a tip that 
someone could smell gas leaks. And they were talking about the smell of gas leaks. And I was thinking, can you actually smell gas leaks? Like, that just seemed um, kind of out there to me. And then I was talking to Audrey Schulman of Heat, and that was one of the questions I asked her. And she said, yeah, you can smell these. So if you, you know, you smell something, say something. Um, so it kind of got me, like, really interested in thinking about hey, actually, you know, this is something that is in my backyard and it's something I have control over to call people. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it because we all know that natural gas doesn't have a smell, but then I think it's methane, right, that they, yeah, they add in so that you can smell it, particularly because if you have a leak in your house, you don't want it to boil up because that gets very dangerous and could be a potentially explosive situation. Yeah, and that was interesting to me too is, you know, the whole idea that the leak that's the most explosive gets fixed, but these super emitters that, you know, there's like 50% of the soil is gas don't necessarily get fixed. Um and that was crazy to me too. Just kind of um, you know, then talking to Nathan Phillips about how what happens to the trees and you can actually see it. Again, that's something, you know, tangible you can see in your neighborhood, um these trees dying from it. So that was pretty crazy, too. Yeah, I mean, I think, and it's one of the things I've always found interesting about community journalism is so many of these national issues and these national debates are local issues and local debates as well. And this is the side where if you are a community that has an active Mothers Out Front community, they've gone around and they've put gas leak here signs, which is an interesting visual as you drive down the street. And the other thing I found was when I tried, when we mapped it and I looked at the heat map, that is a little overwhelmingly shocking when you look at it, because I looked at that and I, I was, I went into my story thinking, all right, we'll get a handful of a handful of places in Lexington. No, there were a ton of places in Lexington in any town that has natural gas and even some that don't actually have natural gas because the pipelines run through. Mm. But then we have these conversations about, okay, well, what else do we do? I mean, is coal the option? Is solar the option? Is wind the option? Because I have to say, I'm not going without heat and electricity. That is a non-starter for me. (laughs) Well, you know what's interesting too is, um, you know, Audrey Shulman was talking about some of these pipes are from the 1860s. So we're talking, you know, like the Civil War. They were using the same pipes that we're using now in some cases. Um, But that's true about our water department as well, which is kind of as scary because, yeah, we talk about how bad the water is in Flint and how those pipes were corrosive because of what they didn't treat them as. But we have pipelines in these in our cities and towns since these cities and towns had running water yeah and that's scary that's scary too because that's what we're drinking and you know the other thing that kind of got me um is that we're paying for this i mean as like a ratepayer, i was you know we're paying for things to kind of go into our air and maybe not be great for our trees um and it's like i think something like a three percent of our bill is going towards these gas leaks. Um, So that was crazy to look at. And I saw a report, I think it was the Ed Markey report, um, that was on, you know, 
other states have done things about this, including Texas um, and Pennsylvania, which are all, you know, pretty large states. Um, so we can, you know, why aren't we doing it yet? It's kind of interesting. It is. I, I think the world of utilities is such an interesting kind of business world to be in mm-hmm. because they have a monopoly in a lot of ways. And then you kind of have to figure out what what we want to do about it. And I think it will take a push and mobilization from heat, from mothers out front, because four years ago, I knew nothing about these issues. And I think this is a whole different discussion about whether you want to run natural pipeline or pipelines for natural gas to pipe it down from Canada and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean, I, they're part of a whole, but I do think that they they aren't entirely dependent on each other. You can have different views on the two pieces. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes out next or what technology comes out next. Right. Um, because, again, I mean, this this has been what they've been using since 1860 for these pipes. So what are they going to be using in 2060? Um, Probably the 1860 pipes yeah. still. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the question. I mean, it's how much know? it costs. But it's also how much it costs to replace them how much inconvenience it is to replace them because you have to replace them piece by piece by piece. And they're under our roads, under our front lawns, under everything. It's not a simple, it's not a simple task to do it. Right. So we, if we push for it, we have to be willing to live with the inconveniences of the utility companies doing it. Yeah, and actually, that's something that we didn't touch on in the podcast, but I know a lot of communities, um, I know Newton at least and and others, have been actually starting to coordinate with utility companies when there's going to be construction, um, because I think what used to be happening before that was construction companies, you know, construction in the city or town would happen, and they'd be tearing up the roads, and two weeks later, there'd be a gas leak that... It wasn't necessarily an explosive one, so it didn't need to be fixed right away. But the utility companies would be coming, and they'd be, you know, tearing up the road. Um, so I think a lot of municipalities have started coordinating um, with energy companies. So that's kind of like a different piece of that. Um, and that kind of makes it a little bit more um, convenient for us <laughs> as, as um, you know, people driving around. Right, and I think, I, I think you're right. I think there has been a big push from both sides on that one to try to coordinate efforts. And if you're already digging in and you're already digging and working in the roads, the DPWs and the state highway um, MassDOT are actually really trying to, to be logical in this process. Perfect. Um, Well, thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to learn more about gas leaks, you can check out our website at wickedlocal.com or where I write for Newton at wickedlocal.com. And we will be having some gas leak articles up this week. Thank you.